Yeah, I'm really, I'm really privileged and honored to be here. Um, have an opportunity to talk a little bit about my own experience, my own life a bit, um, then also bring to bear some social science research, not my own research. Maybe at some point, ten years from now, maybe I can do some work in this area. Um, maybe just a challenge just to make us think a little bit about the about the topic. Um, so I'm going to alternate my putting my glasses on and off. I hope not to distract you all too much. But I really need to clean them. I should have done that before. All right. You're recording this. I have to focus. Okay. So, um, so I was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, for those of you who don't, don't know, uh, know Louisiana. Um, actually, they're Cajun country, so they play like Zydeco music. Um, it's not far from Texas. And I lived there about three years. And then my pops uh, he got a job in Kansas City, which is actually where he was, uh, where he was from initially. Uh, working for the light company there. And in fact, he works now and lives in California. He works for Edison. And he still works like electricity, transformers. Very dangerous work. Very, very mechanically inclined. I didn't get any of those skills, unfortunately. But, um, um, but so we moved because of that, because of his job. Uh, and then I grew spent the next, I guess, 14 or so years there. Um, so growing up, we didn't, so I grew up, I grew up with three sisters um, in my family. I'm, I was number two. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. And um, my family didn't really go to church much, actually. It's really interesting. So my name is Christopher Jude Clark II, I'm named after my pops. Uh, and my, my grandmother, maternal grandmother, was a stout a Catholic. And so St. Christopher, St. Jude is why my pops is named Christopher Jude. Um, so anyway, from time to time, we go to Catholic church. I remember learning that Peter wrote a letter. And then, like, whenever, sometimes we go, they have, like, these 10-cent donuts, like, white glazed, like, top donuts. I love food, so I'm talking about food. So I remember, like, donuts sometimes would be in the basement. Yeah, but we didn't really learn much. I mean, like, we would stand up randomly and then sit down. I couldn't, like, figure out the rhythm. And I, I, it just was very hard as a child, trying to figure all this out. Um, we weren't even, like, Christmas and Easter Christmas, right? I don't, I don't, we, like, another category that's beneath that. I don't, maybe you all know what to call folks in that category, but create one if you want. But... Um, it was really interesting. So I had family that was, that was more religious. And I remember uh, when I was nine years old, I was visiting some cousins within Kansas, in Kansas City. I spent the night at their house. And then we went to church. And I don't know the denomination, but they had like a Sunday school, you know, children's church. And, um, and you know, like, they church, you know, they do it from time to time. I say, you know, do you know who, you know, who Christ is? Are you saved? And, and I wasn't at the time, you know, so I stood up and, um, and became saved at that point. I received, you know, Jesus as my Savior. Um, it's really interesting. You think, well, you have to know that at nine, right? You're, you're unchurched, right? Like, it fit me in that in many ways. Um, it was really interesting. So, like, that night, I remember, like, having a dream that I was like, on a bike and, like, flying. So, this was like E.T., for those of you who are old enough to understand that. <laughs> Maybe it was like that. But it was like this freedom I remember experiencing, right? And now I'm nine. It's like, I didn't know what to make of it, right? But it was like this real change in my life. I'm going to drop some words here on you. I'm academic, so I have to like, try to prove I'm smart, right? So, uh, this term, uh, metanoia, the change of heart. I felt like there was something real there that happened. Um, and it was interesting, right? Like, here I am, still in inner city, Kansas City, which I don't know if I make that clear. Um, so like, all my schools were, like, black. Which is, you're going to see a theme here, like, 98% black. We had a few white folks in, you know, in my classes. They kind of stuck, stood out a bit. Um, so, you know, very much a black environment. and not really knowing much about, about white folks at all. Uh, if I didn't say white folks, they kind of sent you a signal, right? So, <laughs> the people group. Anyway, um, it was interesting, though. So, you know, I remember I would pray. I would pray both to God and Jesus because I thought I had to, like, pray to both of them. I didn't want to get in trouble playing missing, like, <laughs> I didn't know, right? This, this, is all, this all makes sense from that perspective. Um, and then, like, my parents wound up getting divorced a few years later. Uh, and one result of that is we started going to church with my mom and my, my, 
but my sister had a sister six years older, so she was still with us, but she was far older than we were. But we all moved you know, with my mom, and we moved to more of a city sort of suburb area. Um, and I wound up going to school that was much more diverse, you know, instead of 98% black, it was, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40%. And then a lot of whites, a few Latinos, maybe a couple of Asians too. But anyway, mostly black and white. Um, we wound up going to church. And I think it's the denomination, I think it's full gospel. I don't know, I don't, that doesn't mean much to me, but maybe it means something to you all. I saw it was a church, lower class, I mean, if I would describe it now, I would describe it like, then I didn't think of it in these terms, but a lower class church, um, black church, <laughs> um, in the inner city, pretty old congregation, mostly female, in terms of the name, the ushers, and it's, not ushers, but ushers. Right? <laughs> we're wearing a hat sometimes, the white gloves, and we're sitting, okay, here's your seat, and you know, we sit in the same seat. Um, my mom, you know, taught Sunday school, so we'd go, and, um, and that was a really, I learned a lot, I mean, that's like the first sort of church experience I really had, um, and I just really soaked it up. I mean, my, my, my pastor, in fact, he's still preaching now, he's like 80-something years old, but a really funny guy, I'd probably get my speaking staff from him, because he makes jokes, you know, he, like, he taught, like, he talked about you know, metanoia and like dudamus and like all these like great terms. And he like break things out and sort of my speaking style, I think I do get from him because he would start off and you didn't know where he was going, but then eventually at the last five minutes he'd make a point. He's like, wow, you could have been there like 40 minutes ago. I could have had lunch, right? But he took his time getting there. But I loved it. I mean, I soaked it up and I learned a ton and grew a ton. Um, you know, I would go to Sunday school, my mom was a teacher, so I learned a lot there. Um, <laughs> so I remember waking up Sunday mornings and Sometimes mom would have like bacon, like and this is real bacon, ain't like turkey bacon now, but real like pork bacon or something like it. And I'd smell it and wake up and go eat, you know, sometimes you know, homemade pancakes with bacon and um, a nice big breakfast because you know, Sunday school started at nine forty five and then like the, the normal church at ten forty five. And then he sometimes get home at one thirty or two, just depending on how long it took past for Franklin to get through his message. And um, I just remember being really hungry, so I think that's why I love sandwiches these days, because I go home, that's the quickest thing I could make and eat after being in church all day, right? And church service, I mean, it was very, a lot of emotion, but not necessarily um, doing backflips and getting, you know, slain in the spirit all the time. Sometimes that would happen. There's some charisma there. Um, and sometimes we'd have other churches come along, like we interact with other churches, other predominantly black churches or black churches, and... Um, for either the pastor and wife's anniversary or the church anniversary, and, and like they come over, we had brisket, macaroni, a peach cobbler. Oh, that's, that's good food, right? Really bad for you, really good. You all know this is south, right? So like that kind of food, stick to your ribs. Um, and and then those days, I mean, goodness. Then there'd be a three o'clock service, and then so you get home at five, six o'clock, and so you talk about you put a church from nine thirty to five, five thirty, six o'clock some days, and, and so uh, but that was that was. This came to territory. And what really struck me was the uh, relationship between the different churches. The fact that you had, you know, pastors such and such would come over to Pastor Franklin's church, right? And sometimes we go to their pastor wife anniversary and they feed us, right? They return the favor. And it was it was just really neat. So anyway, that was my experience, okay? Um, just bear with me. I try to make a point. So mostly black, okay, mostly lower socioeconomic status. Um, and then very much, you know, a lot of the call and response, right? I mean, you have people trying to finish the pastor's sentence. He'd be saying something, you know, and, you know, Jesus whacked. And it's like, no, he's not at that scripture. He's actually talking something else, right? Then, you know, you think the song would be over, the person playing the piano, but then, like, people start singing again, and then start back off. And so, like, okay. They're singing the same song for 10 minutes. And that's what I was used to. So then I go, I went to college um, after, after high school. 
um, in, in St. Louis, St. Louis University, a Jesuit Catholic school. Uh, go Billikens. It means nothing to anyone unless you know St. Louis or you watch really bad basketball. Anyway, um, and I mean, I really grew a lot there. I didn't grow up from a faith perspective, so I should get that out of the way. That I, I mean, I wasn't like I backslid, so to speak, but I didn't find a church home. Um, I don't like pray and stuff and go to like gospel concerts, but I really got more involved in like student life type things, student government and things like that, but not, I didn't have find a church home. Even though I knew in back of my mind I really needed to, but uh, I, I, I never did that. Um, what was interesting there is I, um, I really learned a lot. Well, I had these stereotypes in my mind, these, these sort of barriers, I should say, um, that existed between myself and other people. In fact, this is sort of a broad way of telling the story. So, um, so there, it was really like white Catholics, right? And so like hypocritical white Catholics. Let me just get, be clear there, right? And not that blacks weren't hypocritical, but who were Catholic, but most, a lot of them weren't. So that, I had this idea in my mind that some of these kids were more fluent, a private school. Not everyone was rich, but some of these kids had some money, you could tell. And so they'd go out Friday night, and so I was an RA for a number of years. And um, sometimes when I was on duty, I'd have to clean up things that, Vomit. Let me just get to the point. I got you know, like a nice little substance you could like put on it and like dry it up and then you sweep it up. But like people would do all. I didn't, I didn't, so I'd see people come in wasted. You could just reeking of alcohol and embarrassing themselves. I got a kick out of it in some ways. Like you go down to the desk at like eleven or twelve and you knew it was the kids would be coming back and, and they come in stumbling. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'd say, Hey, how you know? I try to be nice too. But anyway, um, I saw a lot of that. Right for me, it's like it's like and then, I, then they'd be in mass. Oh, yeah. 10 o'clock, so we had like a 10 o'clock Sunday night mass that was great for people who need to study and stuff. And I see these kids leaving to go to mass. I'm like, I just saw you stumbling in here last night, the night before, wasting it. And so again, it's, it's a judgment to my mind. I'm not proud of it now, but that's where I was. Um, and so in my mind, like, you know, that's just sort of how people were, just were hypocritical, right? I mean, it just goes, goes to the territory. Um, and it was interesting, though, because my heart changed eventually, and again, I grew as well. But I realized that there really were people who were true to their faith. And some of, some of these kids who did that also, right? They just were struggling. They made mistakes, right? We all make mistakes. Um, but I learned a lot about like, social justice, right? And like liberation theology and Romero, like, all this kind of stuff I hadn't even heard of before, coming from my church experience and, and other things. And I'm like, wow, like, there really are devout like, people, right? Who are Catholic and white, right? I mean, that, that exists. That's a thing. Um, and that was really eye opening for me. And so then I, you fast forward, I went to Iowa for graduate school. Go Hawks. And um, <laughs> I'll talk about Josh here in a second, my good friend. Um, and so there I went to get my, pursue my PhD in political science. And, um, and I knew I needed to get my faith life back on, on track. And so I remember meeting, um, like going to like the student fair. You know that thing they do with elders? Oh, yeah, lunch shopping always goes, right? The, whatever it's called, the student fair thing, uh, whatever. You know, you, you know, all student groups are there. You want people to, to learn about who you are. Uh, and I remember meeting a guy from Varsity who wound up being one of my you know, spiritual mentors, Kevin Coomer. And, um, and Kevin's a white guy, so Kevin's about, he's going to turn 60 this year. So back then, he, was, he wasn't quite that old. So it's fall 2005, so you don't want to do the math. Um, but he still, you know, he kind of looks like a mix of, like, sort of like Luke Skywalker, like, but, but before he had, so remember these Star Wars fans. So, like, um, Mark Hamill actually got in an accident, like, between the filming of the first Star Wars and, and The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and so that's why I do the whole thing with the little Yeti or whatever it is, like tearing him down and messing his face up. He got, so his face got really jacked up at some point. Because he really he was, he was much younger in, in the first film, uh, New Hope or whatever it's called. Oh, help me out. You all look it up. You saw what saying. Anyway, he looked a lot like Mark Hamill, but without like the messed up looking face thing. <laughs> um, 
And so, anyway, um, I remember meeting him, and it was really funny because <laughs> the first place we met, and I don't know, I'm trying to set this up well, so bear with me. The first place we met, mind you, I'm in Iowa, okay? I say it's 3% black, and I was okay going there because I'm comfortable being black and good to have growing up in the hood in Kansas City and going to school in um, Midtown, St. Louis, which wasn't Midtown, I, no, it was right near the hood too, uh, mostly black because in that sense. Um, I didn't mind going to a state that was, you know, more white folks or whatever, and more rural. Plus, I wanted to have my big-time football, too. Plus, I wanted to get a PhD. All these things are part of my, my calculus. But anyway, I'm in Iowa. The first place I meet Kevin is at a place called Whitey's. <laughs> Whitey's Ice Cream. Now, I should have brought, I went meant to bring my T-shirt, because they have some of the best ice cream you can find. Seriously. Like, their shakes, their malts are really, really good. In fact, one year for Lent, I gave up Whitey's ice cream. That was, oh. <laughs> I think, like, Easter, I probably went and ordered, like, three malts or something. <laughs> anyway, I met at Whitey's. And so when you go inside the walls of white, it's really good ice cream. I'm kind of like, I mean, you can say I have a sense of humor about these things. I'm like, Whitey's? Really? A white dude? From Inner Varsity, you meet me at Whitey's ice cream. There's a brother moving here to Iowa. It's <laughs> too much for me, right? Um, and it's funny. I mean, Kevin's an amazing guy, though. It really taught me a lot about faith and um and so I did justice. And, and, and anyway, between Kevin and then also um, the church I wanted to go into there, um, at times it was a vineyard church, Iowa City, a vineyard church. And, um, and actually the Wasink family, they were the pastors there, Indian, Indian time Wasink. And, and so Josh here, well, just, so Josh Wasink is my good friend. And actually he's one, one of their, their kids. And so actually Josh is more like a brother than anything. And uh, so it's a pleasure here, Josh. Um, but they really adopted me really as like the fifth son, all right? And so they're four boys and, and Cassie's the sister. Um, and you know, it's sort of like this joke of me being like the favorite son and all that for, for, um, for Aidy and Tom. Um, so they invited me over like on Fridays they have. So Aidy uh, is, is actually Jewish. She grew up Jewish. And, um, and so we had like a shot. Or something I'm going to say to if you want. But like a Friday night dinner and it'd be like this really good brand. Man. We need some of that bread here, so I mean, just good, and then um, and just really good food, and then was, you know we play like euchre, and you know I bring like Mike and Ike's and like this really cheap juice from High V, which is almost like sort of like a Harris Teeter or a Kroger or something, right? But I bring it. I'm a poor grad student, right? So what did I bring to a feast? I can bring sugar. Uh, so we play this card game. I don't know if y'all played euchre. It's a great card game, um, and you know sometimes play other games, watch movies, and just. And so I really became a part of the family, and, and I really. I grew a lot in that church as well, you know, being part of small groups and so forth. The overall arching story, I do have a point, is that, you know, my time in Iowa, well, goodness, I can't go without Mr. Tiana. So then also, I met my wife, Tiana, there. Get myself in trouble, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the Vineyard Church, in fact. And in fact, um, Amy was actually really critical in kind of helping Tiana and I sort of cross each other's path and become aware of each other. I'll tell that story another time. Um, but anyway, uh, and so Tiana's wife, for those of you who don't know, and, um, you know, so we met each other, you know, we went to the same church and all that. Our, we really cultivated our relationship there. We, obviously, so we're married now. We have three lovely girls. Um, what was really interesting is that I didn't intend to marry a white girl. I mean, I just didn't because growing up in the city and being one of the few brothers that actually was successful, I didn't want to, like, be that guy. Okay, I'm going to make a reference here for people who are a little older. Just, this is my bone for, for those of us who are over 22 or whatever. And so it's this movie called Save the Last Dance. You need to know Childs, right? And then, and so she's like, I don't know, it's not the best movie. But anyway, it's this cross-racial relationship. And um, I didn't want to like, be that brother, right? Like he was there, I think was his name or something. And, you know, he was going to make it. He's going to go to med school. And, and so I kind of saw myself in that line, right? Like I was making something of myself. And I didn't want to 
you know, like leave my community behind and kind of, you know, and, and do that thing. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, what was really interesting is that, you know, in my time in Iowa in particular, and partly due to the interactions with, with the Wasik family, going to the Vineyard Church and then you know, being part of Bible studies at NMRC with my friend Kevin Coomer, just relationships, you know, I began thinking differently about myself. Now, again, I'm black. I very much identify as black, so that's all I hear that. But in terms of identity, like my Christian identity all of a sudden became something that really was sort of critical in terms of how I thought about the gays in the world. Now, obviously both. I'm not dismissing it like I'm no longer black as a Christian. I'm not saying that, but thinking more about myself from that perspective. And so then being able to meet Tiana and us, you know, fall in love with each other and, and you know, see past the fact that I'm black and she's white, right? And was it in 1967, Love versus Virginia, that that was, in fact, allowed by the, you know, by the U.S. The Supreme Court had to make that ruling. And I had to put an academic piece in there. We'll get, I'll talk to Shop more later. But anyway, um, so I think it was these relationships that it softened in my heart in terms of thinking about racing my whites and how I think about myself. I think that, that allowed for, the, for that to happen. And so I'm, I'm obviously very grateful for that. Um, for Tiana, for the, for the girls we have. Um, yeah, I mean, goodness, I just stop there. But I won't have more to add. And um, overall, I think what I learned in Iowa, I mean, I, the best thing that happened, obviously, was Tiana and all oldest daughter, Kaya, was born like six months or so before we left. And, um, and then like, I really came to faith there, you know, and met great people there. And so my PhD was like the fourth or fifth most important thing to happen. Now, people here say, well, you're mad. It's all about your PhD and your trajectory and all this other mess. But it was like, it didn't, right? It's not even the first, I mean, I mentioned like three other things before I even get to that. Um, so it's a really formative, formative time in my life. Uh, but what it taught me is that like there are white Protestant people who aren't necessarily like hardcore or more majority Republicans. Now, if you, if you happen to be that category, I'm not going to hate on you, all right? That's you. Those are your views, right? But, you know, my sense was that, you know, I just weren't a lot of more left-leaning, right, or, or non, you know, yeah, white people who were Protestants. I, I just didn't know many of them. If you look at Christian Broadcasting Network and Pat Robinson and all that, right, Santa Hunter Club and Again, I think I made my point. Liberty University, I should stop. But my point is, right? Like that's a whole thing. And so I'm like, wow, people like this exist. I mean, like my man, like Kevin, man, that guy. I'm always getting emails about him and things like social justice. I mean, man, he's. I mean, right? And I, it, it just was really eye-opening for me. Um, and then also, yeah, Josh's family as well, right? So it's, um, that was a, a real process of growth for me. What I should also add, because I want to leave time for Q and A. I can talk all day, so let me. Speed us up a bit. Uh, what I learned a lot there in terms of going to more of a white church was, um, well, it was kind of awkward, right? And I'm like, man, first of all, where's the choir? There's no choir. Like, you stand up and sing. And, and, and like, the songs they were singing were different. Like, I'm used to singing, you know, songs about, necessarily about guys as opposed to, like, sort of two guys. Just, like, the lyrics were different. Um, you know, people didn't, like, dress up as much. Like, they wore, like, this would be dressing up, right? This. And then my other church, it's like, this ain't dressing up. I mean, it's a church, right? You know, put on something a little nice and tacky to me. Um, and then, like, there wasn't, like, interruption of, of the pastor. The announcements were a lot drier. And again, actually, I did announce this for a while. That's another story. But um, it's like you couldn't digress. You had to, like, get up and just read from the script and go sit down as opposed to getting to tell a little bit of a story, right, and breaking things up. And um, Anyway, just very different, <laughs> very different experiences. Um, but again, I grew a lot, uh, and I'm grateful for it. Um, it was just really funny, though, like going from what I described to you before, right? We could be in church all day, and then, like, you go to a different setting. And I'm like, wait, where, where's, like, Pastor White University? Where's the other, like, white church, whatever church you all go have brisket and macaroni with? Or part <laughs> aisle, pork tenderloin and corn with, right? Like, where's and then, well, what is it? What's going on again? It's just, just very different makeup, right? Anyway, I'm still very grateful for it. I'm not, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying it was very different. 
All right, so then, you know, Levi will come here to North Carolina. I'm working on my accent here. I'm not trying to fit anyone having fun. Um, <laughs> what was really interesting is, you know, being educated and being in a interracial relationship, having multiracial children. I mean, you don't have to go back too far. In fact, you don't have to go back far at all to see, you know, the race issue here in the South, all right? And so I don't have to break all that down. There's no reason for me to do that here. Uh, but I had concerns. I'm like, man, okay, so Chapel Hill, I knew it was different. Any college town is, is okay, right? But this is like one of the states that seceded from the Union, right? I mean, it's like, man, I've never lived, I mean, I've lived in Louisiana a few years. Missouri, which I never call it. But I grew up in Missouri. I grew up in the cities as opposed to rural Missouri. I mean, they were, you know, um, sort of sympathetic to the, slave, uh, to the cause of slavery. I mean, the whole Missouri Compromise and all that, and Missouri and Kansas, you know, bleeding Kansas, and them beating crap out of each other. I can say crap. I said crap already. I'll say it three times now. I keep repeating it. Anyway, it's not like Missouri was like this bastion of liberalism when it came to racialism. It wasn't. But still, I hadn't, you know, I wasn't in a, being an adult living in the South, right? A young professional with a family and an interracial relationship in the South. Like, and then, like, dealing with, in terms of barriers, right? It's like, man, like white Southern Christian people, right, who might have very conservative views politically, who might not like me because I'm black. I mean, that's just who I'm going into this situation with this kind of attitude. Um, so it was really hard for me. Like, goodness, man, I've got to deal with this, right? And, you know, I had different experiences here in church that, um, that just went maybe weren't the most positive. But the thing I'll say is that I think what's really helped me a lot is having a relationship with people. So, so people actually like Matt, actually. As a southern, Matt's from the south. I mean, you hear him open his mouth, you know, he's from North Carolina, from some island, never heard of in the eastern part of the, the state. You know, or bag of swap. Where are you from, Matt? Swap bag or bag of swap? Something. He's from the North Carolinian through and through. Right? You know, I'm, I'm picking on you. I have to. Right? But he's a North Carolinian. Um, right? And, and I really got to know him well and got to you know, see his heart. And like, and when you meet individuals, right, who, who fit into these sort of stereotypes you have, it, it changes how you think about them. Right, it allows you to really realize, like, man, I can't just go have this sort of barrier, right? And even if it's a Christian too, like, it's not my place to hold this sort of unforgiveness and judgment towards other people. But anyway, then also my friend Hank Charleston, um, um, is an university staff person here. You know, Hank also, I mean, Hank, he's also I mean, North Carolina, right? I mean, through and through. Uh, but you know, get to know him as well. Uh, and so I've really gotten past like my real um, bias, prejudice toward white Southern. People, especially, you know, to be honest, really white Southern dudes, right? Man, right? And, um, and a lot of it, too, I mean, look, you don't have to go far in history, right? To see these were the people, you know, the hoses, right? The civil rights movement, old Bull Connor, right down in the South, yeah. spraying folks, right? I mean, right? Police and all that. I think y'all, I'm gonna have to, you know, beat kick, kick the dead horse, right? But it, there's a reason for that. But, you know, being able to get past that um, has been really powerful. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. And, um, you know, and from and then from a faith standpoint, it's interesting. So, so actually, I'm talking about Maggie. I'm talking about you for a second, Maggie. You're here. Well, I went to so Tana and I went to uh, church. Maggie left about nine months, and then just before going there, we went to a church that was much more uh, affluent. I like saying it that way, or you have to say it that way. The British person or something. Anyway, and you know, Maggie's church is downtown Durham, and it, and it taught us a lot. One of the biggest things is... What about the affluent church? No, you know, my goodness, the antithesis of that. Um, but one of the things that it really taught us a lot, Tiana and I, uh, is, I mean, it's really hard to, like, be in, like, downtown Durham and, like, have people, people who have struggled with addictions and struggled with poverty, right? Many, you know, people of color, many African-Americans, not all, not exclusively, but many, 
um, it was really, really hard. It's very humbling, right? So we're going there thinking, yeah, we want to move away from this um, lily white. I love saying that, lily white. It's just great. It just comes out your tongue. It was a very white, affluent sort of church, right? And like, we want something that's more real and raw. Boy, did we get that. You know, the boy, it was, it was good for us. It was difficult. It was very humbling. And in many ways, it made me, instead of like being on my high horse, like, look at me, Mr. Right, I'm going to this church and downtown Durham, look at me, look how great I am, pat myself on the back. It was more like, man, this is really hard. Um, and who am I to like sit and point the finger at people, right? I mean, it was very humbling, and so that's been good for me. Um, and um, so then when I was going to Love Chapel Hill, and actually, man, it just kind of helped us with that. Yeah, you did. She helped us out. So that was cool. And so and then wound up, you know, that's how Tiana and our family wound up here. Um, it's been great being here and getting to know folks and, and and being able to do something like this, I, mean, I never imagined that would happen. I mean, in North Carolina, like, you all sat here patiently listening to me ramble on about things. Um, and care to hear it. I mean, that's just really amazing, right? Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. Um, what did I want to add here? So, yeah, so hopefully you all see this trajectory, right? Like, this whole idea, I mean, coming from where I came from and, like, not having a lot of exposure to whites and then, like, slowly but surely having more exposure. Um, I didn't talk about it in high school, but I did debate in forensics. So I was one of those debate nerds. Um, taught me a lot. That's when I really first learned. That's when I interact with white white people and um, start thinking about the less as white people, more as individuals. It's really helpful. Uh, let me tell one quick uh, funny story before I, I, I close out this portion. Um, I remember my first day of high school, and so this is in the more diverse area. So coming from inner city Kansas City to Raytown High School, which is where I went, um, and I had seven classes. I came home. I said, "Mom, you won't believe it. I have the same girl in every class." So I hadn't been around white people enough to really be able to distinguish them from each other. So it turned out that there were two white girls that I had between my seven classes, Katie and Heather. But I thought they were the same person. Like, I honestly thought that, because I'm like, I'm from the hood. I don't think white people. So it was, I literally thought that, right? Clearly, like, it's not like I don't have them, right? I mean, that just, it was, it was pretty funny, actually. So I like to tell that story. Um, you're sort of coming from there. But anyway, so I want, I want to talk just briefly here about some of the what I've read, um, some social science research, and now I, I want to have Q&A because I've talked longer than I intended. Um, so one of the things I found interesting, I read this book called Divided by Faith by uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, 2000 book, published by Oxford University Press. And uh, it's a really amazing book. I hope to write a book half that good at some point in my life. But there are a few things I just want to mention, and they might come up in my Q&A later. One is what they're basically trying to look at is how white evangelism, or so white evangelicals, how they sort of contribute to and, or shape their white, black-white relations. It's a real big picture. Okay, let me, let me hammer down a little bit more. One of the things they really find is interesting is for many white evangelicals, they think a lot about individual level things. I'm not individually racist. I'm not mean to the black people I know. I'm not a bigot. I don't have racist attitudes. That's enough. And there's much less concern or either, I don't want to say necessarily, maybe there's unwillingness and inability. I don't, I'll just say both for now. But there's very little attention paid to structural systemic issues and how they contribute to race. So they talk about this idea of racialization, how race affects people's life opportunities and life outcomes. And um, it's just, it, it's, it's, so for many white jokes, it's just not the big picture. What matters is how I treat individuals. Um, what explains why people, why black people are poor and, and so forth, it's lack of motivation. It's choices they're making as individuals and not the fact that they're broader systems and structures that discriminate against them and make it harder for them to be successful. Um, so there's one thing I want to mention. So it's focused on the individual level as opposed to systemic Systemic things, uh, structural things. Um, the other thing that really struck me is, and this isn't shocking, but the numbers actually did somewhat surprise me. I think 90% of blacks, and I remember the years of the data, but for some data they had, 90% of blacks go to 
like all black or mostly black congregate churches. 95% of whites. You add that to other research sociologists, people have shown about residential segregation patterns, they exist. Okay, I don't have to, that's not my point, it's true that to you, but they exist. Um, people just end up in these, these scenarios where they have very little interaction with people of other races. Um, this is especially true for whites, and part of this is a function of the fact that if you're two-thirds of the population, which whites, whites roughly are in the U.S. overall, you can live your life in all white circles, right? So, I mean, that's not true for me, because if I wanted to do, like, be where I am, like a professor, <laughs> even at HBCU, there are white people there, right? But, like, there's no way I can live in all black circles. I very much would be limiting my life opportunities. Right? I don't know what that would even look like. Goodness gracious. I don't want to really think about that, actually. Um, so it's not true for racial ethnic minorities. Again, a lot of this is it's a numbers game. So, anyway... Um, you just have a lot of segregation, right? And churches are segregated. We know that, right? And, but one of the things they talk about is one of the reasons why churches are segregated is because homogeneity is good for growth, all right? So in other words, when I'm around people who are like me, I'm not challenged, right? I, I'm not made uncomfortable. I can just sit and we can talk about our 401k. I don't talk about this. I talk about basketball. And I talk about what I eat for lunch. You know, I might talk about something, right? But people talk about things that they care about, right? And it's easy. And then you just sort of, you know, it just kind of goes with the flow, um, and, and those are the sort of entities, organizations, more broadly, they grow, right? Because people are comfortable because they aren't challenged, because it fits needs in terms of meaning and belonging. Um, and actually, for, for, for some, right, the goal is church growth, for people to come to Christ, right, and become saved and so forth. Homogeneity is a good thing, right? Because it leads to growth, and that's the whole goal is to, like, grow the kingdom, right? Bring people to Christ. So let's put racial diversity, integration, all that stuff to the side, right? And let's pursue growth, um, that's not the whole story. It's just part of what I wanted to tell you. That's true, right? But it, and you should read the book if you can. It's really well done. But that's interesting to me, right? One of the reasons why churches are so uh, homogenous. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll end this part with one last sort of statement because I'll get to talk more, obviously, throughout the rest of the night. Um, so they talk about racial reconciliation in the book, and I need to read more on it. I'm not, I'm probably not an expert, but I was able to pick up a lot from the book. And it's all about these different steps to, to racial reconciliation. Right? So I get first, you have to form like relationships and friendships with people. The third step is uh, whites like repenting from their sins and their, their contribution to racial inequality. And the fourth step is, is talking about blacks and whites, blacks receiving that forgiveness. Right? The second step is um, Christians, black and white, resisting like social structures and, and inequality. Hear my word, it's structures, right? It, 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 I brought it up before. Um, so when the whole sort of popularized version of racial reconciliation does a really good job like the first part, right? Let's form relationships, let's ask, you know, let, let me get to know you, let's have coffee, let's whatever. Um, much less attention is paid to the structural, resisting structures and systems. And the reason why is because it's costly, right? If you resist structures and systems, you might not, it might impact your pocketbook, it might impact you economically, it might cost you something. And you don't want to pay that cost, you don't want to sacrifice. I mean, it's too costly for you. Um, and it just really struck me. It's like, wow. Um, hmm. That's something I should bring to bear here in this forum. See, you know, see what people think what your thoughts are. Um, so anyway, there are some positive parts of the book in terms of, of, of people being able to change their views and realize the impact of structures and systems. A lot of that is a relationship. Part of one of the things that you mentioned is, is really helpful in terms of helping how, how, how whites particularly think about race is actually having relationships with African Americans who are of equal or greater status. So in other words, it's not someone who necessarily drives the bus or cleans the toilet or whatever, right? Which, but it's someone who maybe has got some authority over you, right? Or that more sad than you do. So yeah, it's something I thought was, was worth mentioning. Um, anyway, the whole idea about like having to sacrifice and having to be uncomfortable, right, in order for change to happen really struck me. 
And so I want to, you know, make us aware of it and see what we think about it. Um, but yeah, no, that's all I have for now. I went on for a while. And so I'm curious, you know, what questions, what questions you have or comments or anything. Um, thanks for hearing me out. So one of the things that I think of, because I remember going to you a couple months ago and, and asking you if you would talk about or help me, us, people, talk about um, what, how does our faith operate when we see very obvious injustice mm. toward African Americans mm. as white people. And then I realized that, and I think I said to you that day, well, that's probably not your job, <laughs> right? Like, to ask you to do that might not even be the right thing to do. Like, maybe, maybe we can figure that out without making you teach us. Mm. But... We need you in the conversation. So, what, 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 this might even be like a totally dumb question, but like, I don't know what to do. Hmm. Um, I don't know what to do. You know, I see how some people respond to some of the injustices and protesting, and it doesn't really feel to me like, that's what I feel like I'm led to, and I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. So can you say something about that, about responding well to injustice? You talked a little bit about white Protestants and Catholics that yeah. you met that were engaged in social justice. Yeah. From what you've experienced, what would you say to us about how to respond well to encourage justice? Yeah. That's a great question, Maggie. I um, and so I don't have this answer, but I mean, I'll think and I'll kind of offer what my thoughts are, mm-hmm. your response. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, the first thing I, w- I would say is is to actually pray, right? And I say that a lot, and my mom says it. Sometimes I'm like, right, no, we know it's a Sunday school answer, right? It's either Jesus or pray. One of those two things cover all your bases, right? But um, really, like, get a sense of you know what what is the Spirit calling you to do. Right? Um, and to be willing to actually, you know, act on, on that, on that prompting. Um, you know, because for me, right, like, I, I mean, I work at UNC, I have a family, right, I have a job, like, I, I don't think I'm supposed to just stop teaching and, like, up and move somewhere, right, because then I won't have a job, and my kids won't eat, and I won't eat, and I'm, right, it'd be irresponsible, right, yeah, so. Yeah, would be mad. Yeah, I mean, that'd be a bad decision on my levels, and so, I, with different things I think we'll call it to do, I, I, I do think, though, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the starting point, and, and I think, um, well, let's all offer this, Maggie, so I was talking with, with Matt and Justin about it, too. I mean, all, it's not just whites, I mean, they're blacks and all, other people contribute to the race issue as well, right? But you think about, you know, focus on whites, and a lot of my talk is and has been in, in the book as well. You know, but I think we all contribute to systemic inequality and injustice. I mean, where we shop, like where do we go to the grocery store? I'm not going to do a survey here, just kind of bear with me, right? Where do you, where do you buy your clothes from, right? And, and do you drink, uh, I don't know, maybe you drink fair trade coffee. I mean, I try to do that when I can, but it depends on, right. 
What's on sale, right? I mean, it's the end of the month and my money's running low, right? I mean, still, I'm not contributing to something if I'm not doing that. Um, where am I? Where do I live? Actually, I'm funny. I'm in the process, we're in the process of trying to buy a house. We're talking about that, right? Where do, you know, where do you go to school, right? Where might you send your kids to school? Um, and then this other piece, and this, this makes it challenging, right? But I think politics is part of it, too, is, you know, what's your role in the political process in terms of individuals you're selecting, the choices they're making? And, and to what extent are you holding them accountable? Again, this isn't my, you got to vote a certain way, right? Let me see your car registration. No, it's not that. But it's, that impacts, right? These are individuals making decisions that directly impact these systems. You know, if Congress makes a decision, right? Look, well, right decisions they make affect the, the price of health care, right? Affect you know, all these things have a direct, directly impact those things. So I think thinking about the what decisions that we make in those different areas, it, it might make a small dent, but it's, it is a way in which we contribute to these things. Um, so I don't know. I just I can't think of anything better. But I, I think those couple of things sort of frame to get a sense of that of, of what God might be calling you to do specifically. But then also thinking about. You know, with, the, with your time and your talent and your treasure. Again, I like alliteration. I borrowed that from somebody. But all right, with the things you have, your talents, like how are you using those? And to what extent are they contributing to <laughs> these, these inequality at the structural level? Or are they, you know, undermining it? Um, again, I have to ask myself the same thing, right? I mean, my life's with myself. There are ways in which I'm not really necessarily helping the cause, right? Um, but I think that's a tangible thing that we can do. So, Chris, to kind of summarize, I guess it's like, are you saying steps we could take is to filter all of our decisions kind of through that lens of it? Is this promoting injustice? Is this combating injustice? Is it like being intentional with all of your kind of uh, decisions, whether that be, um, you know, your faith decisions, your social decisions? Yeah. Your, like, is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? I think that's funny. Right? In terms of the overall structural piece. Yeah, yeah man. And I mean, financially as well, right? Yeah. So, tell I did something times. Um, your question got me thinking. Um, one thing that really struck me in, in this book uh, is that um, <laughs> basically economic considerations did a lot in terms of, of in terms of well, basically if you look um, at the issue of slavery, all right. So white Southerners were pro-slavery, and one reason why it's helped their pocketbooks, all right. <laughs> that was that's affected them economically. And so one reason why white, white Northerners weren't as in favor of slavery, well, against slavery. Although they were still in favor of segregation, which I thought was so interesting. I should have known that, but I'm like, whoa, talk about splitting hairs. Anyway, um, it's because they weren't affected by it economically. So it's much easier for them to say, yeah, slaves should be free. We don't want to live in there, so we're going to create these ghettos in these urban areas and <laughs> separate them from us, quite literally. Anyway, um, but we're against slavery, and we're able to have that position because it doesn't affect us economically. Um, people being unwilling to challenge you know, the structures of powers that be because they benefit from it economically. The status quo helps them, right? And so I think that the financial piece is really, I think, a really important piece. And not the other ones aren't, but that's, I think, a really important piece because it's where, it's where we really incur a real cost, right? Like, literally, it's costing me something uh, to do something, uh, to act in a certain way. Um, or educational currency, like... Oh, that like is. Yeah. Yeah. Education, where, where that's... Ah, yeah, so that's a that. huge you know, issue that I've seen. It's segregation, education. The, type, the, the quality of education that different Based on their, either, um, I mean, it's directly tied to socioeconomic. Yeah. Um, uh, potential and their, you know, their families, and, and it's, you know, that's like because because no one wants to take no no one wants to take that that kind of hit as far as like with your child. Like I always ask my child always
to, to further inject, like, you know, right. like, I'm not going to let them be a tool yeah. to kind of fix the system because I don't want to So it's kind of, it's like, it's hard. Like the, when, like, I guess we all want to kind of expose our, our children to other cultures and other ways of life, other perspectives, right. young, and to kind of dispel a lot of those stereotypes at a very young age. No one wants to kind of take that cost because... You know, and that's your kid. No, and, and, and I'm guilty of that too, right? I talk a lot about what you know. Do we? Because right now we actually homeschool like Kyle, who's the only school age kid. Um, and so it's something we think a lot about, right? So I mean, for me, it's hard. It's like, man, I went to school again. I mean, I would be able to play Uno during the school day. Like, we would play cards. We play, you know, paper football, remember that when you do a triangle, you flick it? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Get that field going. I'm not getting where you are, Robert. Back in the day. <laughs> we would play that in the middle of school day. Right? Now, thankfully, like I said, I'm grateful I made it here, right? Grace of God, and also I mean, talents and all that, right? So I'm not bragging. I didn't do anything, right? These are all gifts. But I look at my peers, talented people, and I'm like, or in other words, people who are mediocre who go to really good schools, Come to college, right? If you're mediocre in the Kansas City School District, Kansas City, that's how we say it, Kansas City School District, good luck, right? Going to college, right? It's not going to happen. And so, to your point, yeah, uh, these different opportunities from educational standpoint. Um, but yeah, I mean, I struggle with that too. Coming from that study and thinking, wow, like I, so I want to force my kid, you know, kind of to go to a certain school just so I can make a point, right? Well, why am I doing this? Um, and it's just hard too because then I mean, you create more schools. Again, I'm not against charter schools inherently, right? But I'm going to teach, you know, my college 101 class, I'm going to tell my students about this, that as you take less and more and more from public education, it just exacerbates the problem, right? You come up with these alternative methods that might be useful, but then it's like, you're not investing in public schools, and then you continue to have schools. In fact, charter schools are becoming, or, or, or like, becoming segregated here in North Carolina. There's research on that, and that's going to be ticked at it, but these things become segregated, too. And so, and then the whole school, the whole school, like, a lot of the beginning of school segregation was because of Brown versus Board. It's because the Supreme Court said you can't have schools be segregated, and so whites took their kids out of school. Yeah, <coughs> I mean, mm-hmm. as I learned more of that, I'm just like, dang, like, how do you get that? into affirmative action and other things? Like and busing, right? Let's bust them. But boy, talk about, you drop, talk about dropping a boulder or something, right? Mm-hmm. Back in the 70s, just say that busing. It's like, oh. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, I guess not necessarily for you, it's for everybody. Um, it's going off of what Maggie said earlier about um, just like, how do we do justice? Like, yeah. What do we do? And what's interesting to me is that the first responses you gave were kind of more private in nature. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, pray, you know, ask God, and then, like, contemplate, like, yeah. how you could, you know, go against, you know, the scissors. Um, but at what point, like, do we need to be intentional about being very public mm-hmm. about our injustices so that, you know, our friends yeah. can feel supported? And I have had some, some really, really, really good friends that I consider close and amazing say that silence would be the thing that you cannot do, mm-hmm. you know? Now, I know when things happen, mm-hmm. right, with um, the world, um, that there's opportunities to not be silent in that case. Right. But what, what happens when those things are not happening? How can we not be silent and be supportive to um, our brothers and sisters that are different colors when there's no shootings, when there's no um, things like that going on? So this is my question that I have. How do we live out justice publicly? so that our friends can feel supported when there's not much going on in the world to help to talk about per se. I guess maybe that's kind of raised in, in, in recent events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was Chris answering all the questions? No, I'm not. <laughs> that I'm putting that one. I'm kicking it. That's a punt. Did you have a side of the answer? Yeah, um, this is 
high level, uh, you all talking high level. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm trying to uh, follow, and you know, it's uh, I, you have more experience doing it. But anyway, uh, um, I, the whole thing is is uh, relationships with people, people intermingle with each other, and uh, put Jesus in there. That's the only way you can continue to. And uh, um, I've seen amazing things happen, and and uh, the power of God, you yeah. uh, know, get and He can change things, and what it really take a lifetime to do, He can do it in one minute, one second. <laughs> but I mean, uh, this is uh, this is how I see it. I see getting the power of God in the church because yeah. power. I mean, I lived, I grew up. I, I used to live in the hood myself. Yeah. I lived under a house in Raleigh with a raccoon, and, and in the middle of Raleigh, a raccoon. And uh, um, I, I, I hung around people uh, yeah. that got involved. I went over and ate chitlins and. Oh, man. That. I haven't even done that, bro. I can't eat chitlins, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Big chitlins. But anyway, uh, um, um, you know, it's, uh, actually I ate chitlins when I was in prison. But anyway, I had I went through a, a, a tough life and, uh, and uh, you know, it's learning how to deal with people, black people, white people, I don't care who, who they were. I learned how to speak a little bit of uh, Spanish and, and um, but anyway, uh, people were, uh, you know, I was in a different se- se- section of people. My group, my father was command. he's a retired commander in the Navy. I was around, you know, uh, really smart people and all that, but I wasn't, you know, good in school. I went out and did drugs. But anyway, that was a whole different, uh, but anyway, dealing with people, I don't care who you are, yeah. you know, it's just a relationship with people. Yeah. And being honest and just, uh, it didn't always work with everybody because not everybody's that way, you know. But anyway, you just got to take a risk mm-hmm. in life, you know. And you got to step out there and by faith, bam, you know, and if it works, it works. If it don't, oh well. But usually it does. So. <clears throat> Thanks, Robert. Yeah. I appreciate what he's saying about relationships, and I think that, that a lot of, I mean, something that, that I have for the last couple of years hoped is being really intentional about being at the table or in a room or whatever space you're in. It's really easy to just be with white people when you're white. And I think we have to try to not be. And, and being a model of, of trying to model that for people and inviting people to come along is what what I've been trying to do, but it's really difficult. Mm. I mean, you it's really, really easy to just be with white people. Mm. Um, and I don't prefer white people. And <laughs> <laughs> when, when we left Durham, I'm like, can I have some black people, please? Because this is... Variety is a lot more exciting. Um, but, but trying, I think we have to try. And, and make ourselves. You know, one thing that I've been doing lately after seeing I Am Not Your Negro tri- twice, which really messed with me, um, I went to two black women who are pastors and asked them if they would just talk with me. 
Mm. And we've begun, we, we, we're going to grow that out mm. and invite people, mm. as it seems, um, just to be together, not even to necessarily talk about anything, but to get to know each other mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. and to spend time together, you know? Um, so how do we do that? Hi, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, um, I'm Christina, everyone, and I'm Josh's wife, and I know Chris and know Maggie as well. Um, I would, wanted to just say that I really appreciate what you just said, um, and also kind of respond to Alan's question, in that what I find um, to be a good response, and what do you do in, like, when there's no big riot to go to, or, you know, not riot, but protest to go to next or whatever, is... Um, just what you're talking about in terms of building community, mm. but with the caveat that just because somebody looks different from you doesn't mean that that's diversity. Mm. Um, there are other ways of thinking about theology. There are other ways of thinking about relationships yeah. with God. And I think that elevating voices and um, how people are accessing Jesus and how people are accessing God through prayer, through, through, through different kinds of faith practices. Um, I don't mean non-Christian faiths. I mean within the body of Christ um, that are valid and that can be explored and can enrich us all. I think that that's really important. And, so, and I don't think you get that unless you um, do have those conversations with people, but also allow um, things within yourself and within your church body to change. I'm glad she all set me up. I'm glad this is a tough question. I didn't have to feel it at first. So, yeah, I, I think that's, that's really the letter thing you all saying. Um, so, one of the, thing, the things you can do tangibly as a church is actually, a lot of times, I think about things in terms of power, right? I feel power hungry, but I'm studying politics, but I love this power. But you have to be willing to give up power. You have to be willing to give up positions. You have to be willing to give up influence. So in other words, I'm not saying you have to allow people to interrupt the pastor every 15 seconds, right? But you have to allow space for other ways of worshiping and interacting. So, I mean, right? There's some places where if you were to take part in a call and response, people wouldn't know what to do, right? Hey, man, what do you mean? Somebody's talking right now? Something in the trees the world is you know? And like, you know, and somebody wants to clap a little bit and move, and it's like, wait, why are you moving? And so... And I'm not I'm joking, but what I'm saying is you have to allow things to shift. You have to allow. It can't just be, oh, I have a couple of black folks here. Look how diverse I am. I have them on the committee to deal with diversity and pass out sandwiches. <laughs> but to actually put them in a position yes. of leadership, yeah. to allow them to have their voices heard, to actually allow worship to change. Yeah. Yes. Like, that's a systemic that's, risky. that's a thing that church can do. And it'll make people uncomfortable, right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, sometimes I get sick of people trying to finish a sentence when they don't know what the pastor's saying, right? <laughs> but there's something to... <laughs> Saying, oh, that's just not how we do church. Go to that church down the road if you want to talk back to the pastor. And then guess what? We're right back in homogeneity. We're right back in, this is how the black folk worship, and this is how the white folk worship. And, and, um, so I think, in other words, intentionally integrating these, these faith spaces, like making an effort to do that, right? Um, and welcoming the, 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 it might be a little uncomfortable. Church might go on a little long sometimes, right? Um, you might have a lot of awkward interactions. In fact, you probably can count on it, right? But some might leave, and some yeah. might leave. Why don't they leave, Maggie? What do you mean? They would leave. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, exactly, right? Like, oh, I want to go church shopping because I need, you know, to check these five boxes, right? Um, 
I think it's risky because there is that economic part to it. Is that you know the people in churches who tend to have money, you know, and who are supporting churches, you know, they might not be so happy with changes that would attract people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think that there there is that component. You can go ahead, Nasha. I'll give you the floor here. Because I'm just, I have some power here. You, you can speak. Brother, watch it. Well, I, I, I was just thinking, kind of uh, building off of what everyone is saying, I think you very the question of like, how do we respond when there's not uh, a major public event? And I think one of the key points in that is if you are at a point where you're, I think part of the reason why those key you know, kind of galvanizing events are important is when you're in a homogenous space where you're not exposed to. Because if you're not exposed to injustice day to day, it doesn't mean anything until it's plastered on the news. But when you're in community or in in spaces or actually seeking out kind of aware of broader social structures, then a police shooting is sad on its own, but it also just it fits within a, a broader reality that we live in. And I think that is kind of to what everyone else is saying is why it's so important to try and seek out. The, the spaces where you are with people from different backgrounds and, and from different you know racial backgrounds and different places because you know because someone hasn't been shot recently doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing racism um, and so I think that to me is sort of like I guess that's what I'm processing I think a big part of it is that it's shifting our mindset away from what is being talked about in the news and more to what's actually going on day to day and like the you know, the reality that we're living in. Okay. Well, this is kind of, I don't know if we want to keep going. This is just sort of like, I guess, the building block. Another question, comment, sort of. I don't really know how this is going to come out, so bear with me. Um, I grew up in D.C., and I'm, my father's Colombian, and my mom's from North Carolina, and she's very politically active. My dad wasn't. Grew up in a not great school district, so from middle school, high school, I got uh, the opportunity to go to this all-girls Catholic school, which was very affluent, a lot of politicians, kids. It was So I grew up in my home very much with the Colombian culture, always identifying as Latina, and then I would go to school, and it was such a negative connotation of being Latina because I was like one of four people that wasn't white in my class. So I grew up very frustrated, and my mom's family here in North Carolina, I love them, they are my family, but it was a big deal that my mom married a Colombian, and so that's kind of been on me, and there's always some sort of comment here and there. But, so I've frustrated, been frustrated with kind of identity on and off. Um, and being very politically active and constantly wanting to, to know more, I find myself getting frustrated with injustices and angry with people that are in power and abusing their power to continue injustices. And I guess my question or what I'm trying to get at is sometimes I feel like I lose a little bit of the focus of my faith in those moments. And then when I try and bring myself back, I get a sense of a different level of frustration feeling like I'm not, I don't want to quiet my need to speak up because I feel like I need to pray for them these people are like, you know, they're people too, you know and it's, so it gets frustrating kind of how to constantly keep at it on both ends I guess, so I don't really know if that came out 
No, I'm sorry. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. I uh, no, thanks for that. Anyone else can respond? I, 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 thanks for sharing some of that. Um, as I was talking with, with Matt and Justin earlier, and one of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, it's amazing, and I probably do this too. When folks read the Bible, they kind of sometimes see what they want to see in Scripture. I say, well, one of the disciples was a zealot, and look, Jesus, look at you, right? Jesus didn't come and overthrow the Roman government, so he quit being politically active, right? Focus on the souls, right? And spirit, spirit, eternal, that eternal nature of human beings. That's what matters most. Let's just ignore all these injustices and ignore the fact that some of us might be benefiting disproportionately in, in the status quo. And we don't want to change it because of that. But let's just keep going on and focus on that, right? And then, um, but then you also have other folks that I'll throw you in this category, Kessel, but I think a lot of folks who are more socially active and involved in politics might just totally disregard the whole faith piece, right? So maybe that's what you're getting at. It's like, where's the, the mix here? And I think what's really interesting, and I have to read up more on this, but, you know, as I learn more about, you know, Jesus and Gospels and, and, and the culture there, I mean, he was really shaking things up, right? Like, he's going, talking to a Samaritan woman, right? She's there doing what she's got all right. He's, what is he doing talking with her, right? Like, what is he doing eating with these people? He's supposed to hang out with the Pharisees, right? He was had the influence and power. And he's giving them the business, right? And hanging out with these lonely folks. How, that's, undermi- that, that's undermining those social structures and systems. That, that's how I see it. Now, y'all, we can argue, I don't want to argue theology with you, but I think there's evidence for that, right? And so I think, in fact, I know there's room for that's sort of activism with Christian faith. And I think what's hard is, um, I, I guess I think what's difficult sometimes is not wanting to become too partisan, right? I'm not saying you're doing this, but right, I mean, we live in this atmosphere where all this polarization. Right. And so any activism is seen as, oh, well, you're working for the Democrats, right? Or, right, I mean, let me just put it out there. For the most part, right? Yes, it's yeah. the nature of yeah. politics. And that doesn't have to be the case, right? Um, and if you are, it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, right? I mean, I, I think we just have to kind of get past some of these things about Especially since I study politics, I can talk about this more, right? I don't think we should, we limit ourselves too much. Um, you can vote for whoever you want. Well, I can say you should vote for whoever you want. Think about who you vote for and how these people act and how they contribute to structures and systems, right? But I, I, think, um, I think we do ourselves a disservice by just saying, oh, as far as it's so, hands off, right? I don't want anything to deal with it. No, Jesus is very much engaged in this culture and context of doing things to take people off, right? And part of the reason why I was just reading this in, um, in the gospel. I mean, one of the reasons why, oh, I think it's John 11 or something. One of the reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus, the religious leaders, is because they were worried that he was getting too much influence and that they might take off Rome and they might sort of lose their, they might get into some trouble with the powers that be. He was ruffling the feathers of the powers that be. That, I mean, again, besides him coming from the reconciliation and all that, I mean, in the minds of these people, that's why he needs to go. Because of what he's doing to these structures and to these systems. And so... Anyway, I, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think we should be encouraged, like, convicted as Christians to say, how are we doing? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, that's a long way to answer. I have a thought. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Kessler. Kessler? Yeah. Yeah. Alan. Hey. So, um, you know, and this might be using my, my evangelical toolkit, <laughs> but I wonder um, if the answer to the question on how to stay balanced is really kind of like encounter relationships, because... I need someone like you, Kessler, to really put it in my face and be like, hey, look at these things. And maybe you need someone like me who can be like, well, yeah, well, let's think about you know, all the different things. And I wonder if, if that's the case. And I appreciate what you said, you know, Chris, about like Jesus. Because he, he, I mean, he was with, before he was with the rich, he was with the Pharisees. I mean, he ate dinner with everybody. And maybe that's what we need to do, too, to kind of stay balanced. Yeah. And so I wonder mm-hmm. if that's a thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to like... No, this, but not. go ahead. <laughs> I think the place that I 
struggle with the most is like, that's what I've been working on, but it's kind of going that step further and actually having really proactive conversations with people that, and I don't mean like bipartisan, but I just kind of mean just socially how they see people, um, very different because it's easy to have people that are slightly different and you disagree on some things, but overall your viewpoint is, (laughs) you know, but what, how do you have the conversation when about social injustices when your only commonality is maybe being a Christian, but you're on two different ends of it. So I think one way to get it, you all feel free to interrupt, but I think one way to get at that is, um, so one of the things these guys say in their book, The Battle of Faith, is basically white evangelicals need to read. And I'm watering it down. That's one of the fun things about when you paraphrase things. But basically, you need to get educated, right? Because I think if you, if you read some, it's pretty clear, right, like how these things play out. But if you don't know, which is amazing, and you also live in these very homogenous, all-white environments, these little subcultures, and so you really don't have a clue, it's pretty easy to continue thinking that way. So in some ways, like maybe encouraging people as you interact with them, not like in a mean way, but say, hey, I really recommend this book, X, right? It gets you thinking about something and then talk about it. Um, I think one way to help with having a Christian faith, I mean, that's, that's central to this whole thing, is because how do you see them, right? How do you understand them? You understand their inherent dignity and worth. And so because of that, you know, it's going to be really hard, but there's a certain sort of grace, right? There's a certain amount of respect that you're going to exhibit to them. Because of that shared faith, right? And um, in fact, that makes that's everything, right? That you know, without that, I mean, my, I think the even more difficult question would be people who you don't know, share that kind of faith with. My goodness, I don't know how you tackle that, but I don't know if that makes sense, guys. So, yeah. That and it's hard. Uh, I don't know how you stay there, but I don't know how you try to remind yourself of who this who this individual is, right? Mm-hmm. That like they are temple of God. So I don't know. T-O-G, I don't know. Maybe I'm T-O-G, temple of God. Or I don't know. Come a little song or something. Where do you want to smack somebody across the head? Is it clueless? You think you're a temple of God, right? I want to smack a temple of God if you're bad business, right? Uh, anyway, I, so oh, try God. to get back that. I should, you know what? Write that down. I'm going to. It's a t shirt. Yeah. You get a patent on it, man. I might make $10 or something. I think you're really on to the connection of education along with relationships in, in the context of relationships. There's a story that stands out to me from, I think it was two summers ago. Um, there's a professor, a really highly respected professor who held like some position, like whatever his title was, it was one of the most esteemed positions at a respected university, a little, little down <laughs> who shall not be named. Um, but he, um, he got, he got in a lot of trouble for things that he was posting online, um, in a comment section to an article, um, that was about... Uh, one of the protests that was happening. And um, to me, it just struck me. And the things that he was saying, it was like so clear that he did not have any authentic relationships with people who were different from him. Um, because if he did, I don't see how he could possibly make the comments that he was making. Um, but the, the thing that struck me is this person of such high education, and that education is incredibly important, but apart from the context of relationships, mm. it's going to be <coughs> up empty. Um, theology would be the same. Exactly. You could have all the theological <laughs> knowledge and not connect with human beings and be totally off the mark with how to relate to people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think, too, because um, I was thinking about this like education thing, too, 
what I've faced a lot of and what I think a lot of my peers are facing is as these we become more like learn about these systems and especially if they're in our face more we're, we're so aware of them that it's almost overwhelming um, uh, like realizing you're a part of something mm. you didn't know you were mm. um, and I remember um, mm-hmm. one of my <laughs> first classes that I took at Duke did was a class on Christian love um, Duke Divinity um, with Amy Laura Hall and I was like oh this is going to be awesome she's so sweet she's an ethicist and all this and, um, and it's on Christian love and one of the first books we read was Tony Morrison's Beloved oh <laughs> and I was just like it was it was all and I remember like going and meeting her office and be like I don't know what to do with all this information like all this stuff like I haven't had to face this you know I don't know what to do and just feeling so broken um, and that whole class was like a whole semester of oh my god how on earth do we love each other like how how do we do that like and it was over and over again like seeing how much we feel about this. Oh. Basically, um, so like the cross, right? It was like this this tool that was meant to. It was like the Romans what they used to kill people, right? So it's like this really signaled, like, hey, here's our powers, our influence. You don't want to deal with us here, right? And yet, like now, it's a symbol of right redemption and God's love. And so, like, basically taking like this symbol that was like the you know one of the most powerful empires ever, right? One of the most influential in history that they use as a torture device, right, to, to keep people in line and, and scare the crap out of them. Now that's like a sign of our redemption and like reconciliation to God, right? And so it's very, it's very I keep going back to subversive, but like, mm-hmm. but it's a really powerful signal, right? How that shifted from being one thing to another. Anyway, I had a point I wanted to make there, but I guess what I'm saying is, oh, and, and like, even though it didn't seem like it at the time, right? Like, Jesus' crucifixion and eventual resurrection, like, totally shook up the entire system of structure, right? So in other words, like, the ways in which our Christian faith can combat, can subvert, right? These powers that be. And I don't know exactly what the avenues are. Allison, but like that, I know that it does, and, and so I guess we're trying to offer that word of encouragement. I think even in the day to day, right, the cumulative effect of those things makes a difference, right? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. seem like it, but yeah, it can, you know. Um, anyway, yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 Rob. Love, just you got to just walk in love, just like God uh, sent the man down, and just you know, you just what you get, and you use what you got. And uh, rely, just depend on God. 
that's that's the only way you can do it. Because this is too big for us. <laughs> I hear you there. Amen to that. Amen. I think too, like I keep hearing you mention, like kind of that that subversive, like yeah. I feel like you're drawing on a lot of like Yoder, kind of um, how how we function within oh. all these systems as Christians and using. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, Yoda. <laughs> my education. Um, oh, that come out. Yeah. Um, but kind of using like that that model of Jesus, yeah. and I think what what I'm getting at is that that's that's and I feel like Jesus is just being like, yeah, but it's so frustrating to like function that way. Yeah. And then if you see like the protests and stuff, it's like our heart is towards that, especially in America. Like what we what we learn in history class of how things have done, are done, you know. It's just a little different than the way of the cross. I mean, not always, like there are definitely examples of that, but it just feels a little different. More organized, you know, <laughs> or something like, or yeah. less of like a Some, leader. Or a leader. Yeah. yeah. I might have missed, I, I missed something that you said before because I went to be a mom and close my work because that I don't know how you responded to Kessler, but something that when you were talking about anger mm-hmm. and like what to do with that, kind of like it sounds like very, it can be very up and down. And you may have said this, so I might be repeating. Um, the thing that came to my mind was it's really important for us to really know ourselves mm-hmm. and um, to be formed inside so that we are changing and that we're acting out of a healthy place, I think. And that's probably a a practice I have not always done well, and I've been trying to be better about that, um, because, you know, you want to get mad, you know, I want to, like, punch somebody. (laughs) And I have. (laughs) Not physically, but um, that's not always effective for me. So as a leader... I've been trying to like be like, well, how, so how do I do this well? And I don't have a good answer, but it seems like the more that I get to know myself and like what pisses me off so that I don't hurt someone, that I can be very aware of that so that I can be like, whoa, you know, I can rein myself in better now. But I'm 50. Yeah. I mean, it takes, it takes a while, I think, to get there. I. So that might be part of it, too. And then the, the funny, you know, you're right about the temple of God thing. Kind of. <laughs> There's also, the temple of God is not individual, it's communal. Oh. So, it's, it, we're not a bunch of little temples. The <laughs> body true. is, is a, a body made of yeah. individuals. Yeah, it's yeah, communal. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, so if we look at people not as... Well, you, you and God, you're, you know, you're God's temple. No, there is no effective temple if we're not together. So maybe, maybe that has some, it, unless the church really comes together. And why would we expect that others are going to be able to live reconciled lives before we would be? I mean, if we really believe what we believe is true. We should be able to do this, you know, better than not, I would think. 
We have a lot to work on. So. So nice that, okay. I was just going to respond to that and just say that just like the church is communal, synod can also be communal. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a recognition of both individual sin and communal sin. True. Mm-hmm. Um, with an emphasis on the communal that has not happened. Like a corporate right. yes. sin. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to say one thing. Oh, these are great thoughts. Um, so man, I talk a lot about subversion. I need to read this. this John, you know John Howard? I know. Paul, but, Jesus? No, I need to read that. Help me out. Help me out. I'm, 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 I need to read these other things. Help me out. Good process here. Okay, I, I, I'll read it some point. Start a book group, the two of you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What I was going to say is, I don't want, I, I didn't talk a lot about subversion, but I think that there also is room for the outward actions, too. So I want to make sure I'm clear there. I just, I think it really depends on, I'm not, because I don't want to say, like, you need to go out there and hit the streets, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't want to go that far. I'm okay with people doing that, right? I mean, goodness gracious, look at the civil rights movement and how right. black people were able to do law, right? That's why I'm able to be here, right? In terms of, like, facilities having to, right? I shouldn't make a joke, but I'm so close to doing it, right? But accommodations have to be integrated now, right? It can't be segregated by law. Civil rights act in 1964. How did that happen? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story in my class at some point. No, the long story short is the civil rights movement put pressure. Yeah. Right on Congress, JFK was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson used his political capital, so on and so forth. But the point is, none of that happened without the civil rights movement. None of that happened without people of faith hitting the streets. Yes, and yes. over time, city by city, little by little, common folk, folks with great uh, PhDs, people without yes. fighting and, and act, actively working against right the system. So there is room for that. I want to make sure I'm clear there. It's just that I don't want to send a message that like, it's evil or that like you have to do it because I think that's sort of where we end up it's like if you're not doing it something's wrong with you why would you ever decide to do that I think both of those missed the mark in terms of the role that it can play so anyway I think earlier and just to echo something you said earlier uh, it almost kind of seems like a cop out thing but to pray and seek the Holy Spirit um, I think if we don't start from that place individually then it's easy for us to find our place in ourself in a place where we're acting on um, emotions from the self, which can sometimes be evil um, or, or fleshly. You know, where the Holy Spirit would lead us into um, into His own heart and, and lead us that way. And we can't we can't fight injustice um, from a, with with injustice. You know, and so if our motives or uh, our thoughts are coming from an evil place, uh, they're not going to work. Um, they're going to launch in a wrong direction. Um, where the Holy Spirit, um, and this echoes you, 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 what you said too as well, we got to start by knowing us and letting the Holy Spirit work inside of us, change our heart, break our hearts for, for others, and help us to see through His eyes. And that will empower us to, to go out and, and do what I don't know what that looks like for each person, but he's going to lead us in a mission, um, you know, that's going to look differently for each of us. Um, I found that only into my twenties. Um, I didn't realize how how much of um, how much racism I was exposed to growing up my whole life um, until I went off to college and and really started letting the Holy Spirit work in my heart to, to show me those things and break me. Um, and here I am in my 30s now, still every day it's something that I have to go back to the Holy Spirit and, and continue to let Him break me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
And if I don't do that, then I'm going to find myself going off and uh, maybe doing something that I think is right, but it's entirely not. You know, it's an injustice in itself. Um, and some of the most um, inspiring leaders that I've seen as a human being um, who fought injustice, uh, you can see their movement start by the leading of the Holy Spirit, you know. And it launches with love and not necessarily... I, I think there is righteous anger. Um, but it launches with love rather than just a place of selfish anger or selfish mm-hmm. uh, ambition. Um, Dr. King, you, you see that from him over and over, that it was with... It was, you can't fight injustice with injustice, but it was done with love. And so when I started studying more of, of him... In my 20s, I started looking into my own life and, and these things that uh, needed to be broken inside of me before I could ever start reaching out and trying to fix things around me, you know. So I don't know. I guess, to me, that some of the answers start with me looking, like you said, into my own life and letting the Holy Spirit break me. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jason. No, I, I appreciate you sharing. And I think, yeah, just... Think about that too is you know, if you're not coming from that place, right, in terms of doing it in the strength of God, right, you're doing it from your own strength and you're just bound to fail, right? You're going to burn out, you're going to get annoyed, right? I mean, you can't do it within your own strength, right? So I'm just borrowing what you all are saying. Just what academics do, you kind of take what other people say and pretend like it's your own. It's a little tidbit I'll give you all. But anyway, no, no, honestly, you have to start from that place, right? Because otherwise the trajectory is off. Um, and, and I think the main thing is being willing, right, to actually respond to the, yeah. help the Holy Spirit's prompting, right? Because, yeah. and again, I, I should be careful, you know, I'm putting my foot in my mouth, but I think there are ways in which we might know we're supposed to be acting differently. Yeah. And we're like, oh, I, you kind of ignore it for a while, you know, put it in the back burner, and then, like, in those moments it comes up and you realize that you need to be doing things differently. Yeah. Um, you have to be willing to, to, to do something about it. You know, like for me, it's like, I, I know I'm not supposed to, like, have this bias for white southern dudes who might be more conservative, but I can justify it, right? Look at look, look, look at history, like, look at that, right? But eventually, I had to move because otherwise, I, I can't be where God wants me to be, right? How can I be in this forum and have this conversation with you all if I'm still looking at you sideways because you're Carolina, right? Like it's a problem. So anyway, thanks, thanks for sharing. This. So with that, Chris. Knowing that you spoke at the Veritas Forum last year in Mississippi. Oh man, Mississippi, that's right. What was that like? Thank you. No, thank you. See, I, it's, it just, you reminded me, I was talking about Mississippi. So last year, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Mississippi State, or as they call it, Mississippi State. Uh, it's kind of limits of the letters there. <laughs> Starkville, or Starkville, I don't know. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to talk about whether or not you need to have Dr. King's faith in order to have his job. Um, and I was, I was having this conversation mm-hmm. with myself and this guy that's like Dean of the Honest College there. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some folks there here, so it's nice. It's nice when you talk to people that's like, like a room that's not empty. It's the, you know, more than just the organizers. Then you feel bad. It was nice, decent turnout. And um, I mean, okay. So Mississippi, right? So you have like deep southern states, okay? So it's like the rim south, so like North Carolina, Virginia. But then you have like South Carolina, Georgia, um, Alabama. Louisiana, Mississippi, those are like the deep southern states. Now, Florida is like its own thing, even though it's geographically there, so just ignore that. But people are like, wait, quote, quote, Chris, there's a state there, but 
It's different. <laughs> At least the, the panhandle is sort of, but the rest of it is. Anyway, let them digress. Mississippi is like the worst of the worst, all right, in terms of like lynching, in terms of like black people not having political power. I mean, it's the worst, right? So I'm like, Mississippi, like, there's no way I did. Like, I, I don't want to just go to Mississippi, right? <laughs> I might not come back. <laughs> but no, anyway, I um, had a chance to go there, and I found myself on a Friday morning, this is the day after the forum, in the basement of like, the first some another denomination church. And so I mean it was a white church, as you all know, in terms of like no, I don't know if you all know that like the second church. You all come on, you all know that like the second whatever church. The first church can't be the black church, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second one because they, they broke away from let me stop. I found myself in a predominantly white church with like middle-aged white guys who are Mississippians, right? And they made breakfast for me, you know, nice like um Man, it was like, I mean, grits and like three different types of pork. <laughs> and like, it, it was really good, really bad for my health, but really good. Um, and they made breakfast for me and I had coffee and I'm like telling my story about these uh, similar to what I told you all, told us, right? You know, a conversation here about these barriers being broken down in my heart. So here I'm talking to like old white guys in Mississippi in a church basement about like my own sort of bias and prejudice toward them. Like they sort of embodied like this group I didn't want to have anything to do with and never thought I could like relate to. It's just a really powerful <laughs> moment where it's like, wow, now you really are something like me. I, I'm coming from King, right? This is me. I'm like here talking to these people about this. And it was and then at the end, like, God prayed for me and like I said, they fed me, you know, so they already won me over to do some. And it was just this great experience where like now, moving forward, like I'm not necessarily like the uh, defender of Mississippi by any stretch of you know, anyone's imagination, but you know, I don't make the jokes. It's not the punchline of every joke for me now, right? Where it's like, Oh yeah, that's Mississippi, and go everybody kind of <laughs> like chuckles. No, I don't do that anymore. Florida. Huh? That's Florida. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no Florida, that's funny, man. But anyway, it's uh, it really changed my heart a lot. Like to be there, it's also when you when you meet people. Right? I'm, it's not just like oh, you know, those people in Mississippi, but like literal like Mississippians. They actually do speak in a way that differs from like North Carolina. I mean, I love these accents, by the way. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. Um, not obsessed with them. I really love these accents. They really work that way. Like people literally say Mississippi that live there, and like hey, this other way of speaking. I'm like, man, this is big dude. You can tell like he ate well, right? They ate a lot of biscuits and gravy. But it's, and this big, this big guy, hey, you know, he's very friendly with me. And I'm like, wow, this is remarkable, man. Um, and it was great for me. And I think we need more of that, right? Like, what is that? Oh, I was thinking um, in terms of like the whole Good Samaritan story, right? Like. Um, in the sort of animosity between Jews and Samaritans, and I'm thinking, I thought because of Mississippi and other places, like what is sort of the demographic that you could see yourself sort of having this real enmity towards, right? Like you want nothing to do with, and like right. and they basically would have checked the boxes for me, like Mississippi, check, right? Like Christian, check, older, yeah, white, you know, probably politically conservative, yeah. I mean, like all these things. Not that, not that I dislike conservatives, but right? The kind of people who would vote for. It's important. Vote for candidates, right? Vote for the laws that will oppress African Americans. All right. So I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on conservatives. I'm just saying, like, given political political politics, right, and how, how policies are made, how blacks are often seen uh, depicted as um, lazy and dependent on welfare. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to that. I want to provide context here. I don't want y'all to think I hate Republicans. It's not true. But they fit. They check all the boxes for me. Um, and yet I'm like having like interacting with them. I'm like, whoa, this is really powerful. Right? So I think for us, like, I think we have to go through an exercise tonight, but think about who the people might be in that category for us, right? And how can we reach, how can we develop a relationship with them, you know, and, and be shown the, 
No, I don't sin. That's in our own heart, right? The only prejudice is in the present of us. Well, yeah, and I feel like I've been really changed from, from that experience. So yeah, thanks for reminding me, Justin. Got a question? I've got to speak up. Anyway, uh, um, uh, the, only thing, the only way I would know, <clears throat> what was the subject now we are talking about? Okay, uh, race race and faith. Yeah. Um, only only way they can be, uh, God has the Holy Spirit. That's all there is to it. Everybody has got to, got to <clears throat> seek God, and, and that's the only way I can see it. Seek God and trust in Him, and He's just amazing. And uh, He can He can fix anything. He can fix this uh, this ozone thing. All, he can give us answers to all that stuff. Just rely on God. Um, it's just uh, it's just amazing. Uh, what, what what? There's no limits. There's no limits. It's just uh, just uh, seek God with all your heart. That's the only way we're going to survive. That's all there is to it. I want to, I want to follow up on that. So this conversation right, that you love Chapel Hill's put on is um, is something that right probably was prompted by the Holy Spirit. That you know this is an issue that the church faces. Um, I guess some kind of um, curious, like what are when when we do pray about these things, like what are some of the things that have been moved in our hearts? You know, they don't have mm. to be huge things, but this conversation is just you know one piece of the puzzle. So, um, like what's going on in our community or your guys's community? Mm. Oh, do I have to answer that? Oh, you look, you look at me. Like, yeah, I was going to say, you got to ask somebody else, man. I talk a lot. Goodness gracious. Um, hmm. I'd say courage to relate is kind of happening. Um, one of the one of the most uh, one of the more uncomfortable but coolest things that Love Chapel Hill has done is the uh, is, is working with refugees, people from a wildly different, um, you know every kind of experience you can think of with a significant language barrier. Mm. Um, and that's one of the things that convicts me because it's something that I know that, that anyone can really do to make a difference is put yourself out there, relate, ask questions about experiences that other people have because for the most part, we all have a story that we want to tell. We all have just that the, the, the best kind of way to show God's love and, um, and really relate to people is to understand them and to ask questions and to open yourself up and, and all that. And that's something that um, I guess is that, that we can be, at least, or at least I personally can be convicted, is um, I, I struggle with courage to put myself out there, introverted. And all that. So, and so, and that's something that um, Love Chapel Hill has definitely taken on because it's 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 tough. We have I think one person who can help us communicate with these folks. It's it's it can be awkward um, to like be from such a very different point of view and to and, and life experience. Um, but you know, just 
forcing oneself to relate and to be and to understand and to engage in the story of other people. That's a small step that one can do in one's own community, in one's own personal life. That's not, you know, ma- you know major protests when someone gets shot. It's just finding out people's story. Mm-hmm. On, a, on a personal level, I mean, I'm making an effort knowing that I live here that one of the things that I see that I have to do is leave to connect with people who are different. So I, I try to be intentional. Wednesday nights I'm out in Alamance County at a meeting on Wednesday. Now there's got to be some of this stuff here, but Orange County is getting more white. I don't know if anybody knows that. It's true. It's like the whitest county. We're really white, and we're like, we like that, and we want it to be white. I mean, Uh-oh. I think that's, so watch out. Uh-oh. So I, I, I find for me, I have to make myself leave Carborough so that I can have diverse relationships. Wow. I go to Durham to have meals with folks uh, now I'm driving to Raleigh, but uh, but I still feel very. This is home, hmm. so you know I, I'm I'm interested in kind of spurring some of this here. Um, hmm. but there's not a lot of diversity here. You have to really try. I think I said that before. <laughs> I like that Love Chapel Hill does community worship with. St. Joseph's and this might be a different race, a, Protest- a uh, Presbyterian church, <laughs> different breed of Christians. Um, and if we could do more with that, building those relationships, yeah. I think that that would be great to have some something grow out of that, particularly with St. Joseph's and um, yeah. maybe some of the other black churches. Whatever. There are black people in Chapel Hill. <laughs> I want to hang out with them. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Go. Uh, so I like what Maggie said. I, I, I found a lot of value and a lot of growth in, in all, all three of our churches meeting. Um, talking about diversity, um, I work in IT, so I'm the minority. Um, So that's been a really awesome experience. Um, Most people I work with are Indian or Middle Eastern, um, and that has been a every day is a constant cultural exchange. Um, Different faiths, a lot of them are Muslim, so a lot of, uh, or or Hindu, um, different languages. um, But they have the same concerns, um, and they, uh, a lot of um, the friends that I work with, feel threatened, uh, feel uh, a mix of emotion with the political atmosphere, with the racism uh, in the South. Um, but that's funny because 40 hours a week, I'm a minority mm-hmm. here. My so I don't feel very far. So it's, like, mm-hmm. it's been really helpful. It's been a lot of growth. And it's made me learn a lot about myself, where I've come from, mm-hmm. um, values I hold, mm-hmm. things I take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, along with our, our church being intentional with other churches to share our stories, to share our, our worship, to share our lives, um, I think that's been very convicting and very rewarding. And I, think, I think a lot of us are trying, and I think that's the first step, and I think it's, 
it's trusting the Lord past that and being willing to invest yourself in other people's lives, mm. even if it's inconvenient for yourself, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, mm. So, I mean, we've kind of all said the same thing. But mm-hmm. that's one experience that was very interesting for me um, was going out of school um, and just being a minority, never being one before. So that was, I in it, it's it's not like this, I guess, um, power struggle. It's still, it's just more like. Um, more so like having to be intentional with what I'm saying, how I'm saying things, because of, um, I can't take things for granted. Mm. And I'm being aware of what thoughts I've had with ideas, what kind of, um, I guess, my whiteness, in a sense. Not that I'm ashamed of it, to be fair. Um, in a sense, like, uh, I, it's, it's been very enlightening. Um, to also answer what your question, um, building off of Wesley's courage, um, I feel that a lot. Um, Love Chapel Hill has definitely given me the space to grow in my faith that I haven't had before, and um, the work that I do, I, I work especially with racial and socioeconomic injustices in birth and sexual assault um, awareness. And it's given me the courage to insert God into that conversation when oftentimes it's, it's not brought up or a lot of the people that I'm working with are not, don't believe in Christ or don't really have any faith. Um, and it has given me the courage to, to bring him into conversations and into my work and um I think it's it's been really hard at times because I've really just seen people totally shut off and not listen but the rewards of of opening that space with people has been leaps and bounds greater than the sad moments when people shut off so Take, take a risk. Yeah. yeah. I kind of have a question. So we talked a little bit about with the political fervor and everything going on and with these constant reminders of in really very violent ways the inequalities and the terrible things that happen in our daily lives. Yeah. We see on the news more shootings and just things that are happening that are contrary to everything that we want to be happening. Yeah. People are dying. How do we, because I think you talked about being overwhelmed, how do we refuse to be desensitized to these things? Because the more we see it, the more it becomes common. And in doing that, it's dangerous because we might start to believe that it is common. And it's very uncommon, and it should never be that way. How do we remain desensitized to that? That's a good question. Well, that's a great question. I mean, you spent the same things that I've said already. Um, so, like, for me, every, I mean, it's desensitized. I don't think I'm, I'm not desensitized really to the racial shootings. It's probably just, but anytime I get in the car, I mean, I sometimes struggle. It's like, I take the bus to work, and I kind of like that. Because I don't want to drive too much, man. The racial profiling, and more and more research is proving 
Well, I know to be true, just driving around black, especially as a black male, be a pretty dangerous proposition, right? So I'm not very desensitized to it. So I, I think, again, I hate, not hate, the relationship is really key here, right? Um, when you are directly affected by someone, someone you know is directly affected by something, it is very, very difficult to right. get desensitized to it. Yeah. And so, anyway, not that it's impossible, but like, in the same way that when I hear about my black getting shot, I'm like, dang, or, I'll, or I might even use choice language that I won't say here on the recording, but, right? Yeah. Because that's me. I, I, that could have been me. Or, like, I think about the Charleston Nine, man, Dylan Roof, right, going to this black church and shooting people up. I'm thinking, that's the kind of church I went to in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Not that I think I'd ever be just something that bad, right? It's like, could have been my mom, right? Like, and I'm not saying other people weren't affected by that, but, like, that, I was brought to a very specific place. And so I think, you know, when you know other people, whether it's other issues, whether it's issues in terms of physical disability, mental illness, all these other ways in which people's lives are, are, are affected, and, and, and they have these more difficult sort of experiences, disadvantages or whatever, however you want to think about it. Um, I mean, you are really, when you love and care for us, it's part of that, and it's really hard to just say, ah, uh, part for the course, uh, right? And so I think that's a big part of it. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to say more, but just to go back to something we've talked about a lot, I think that, that will help you guard against that. Um, so, thanks. Oh, you had a question? Seeing seeing the world from God's view, we can we can do that. We can see, and 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 it 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 changes your whole viewpoint. Um, You can see things, uh, see people. You can love them unconditionally. Don't matter. Doesn't matter. and uh, I'm looking. I'm, I, this is an opportunity for me. I just want to take it. I, I'm asking God for the courage yeah. and the boldness to uh, to do this. And uh, um, there's a lot of I, I, I hear what, what y'all are saying. It's pretty neat how you say it too. But um, but uh, it just it's, Jesus is simple. A little simple. People make it difficult sometimes. But I even do it. I'm, I'm guilty of that too, but uh, um, so how does Robert? How does Jesus look at the world's injustice? What, uh, what it, when he looks at the world and sees yeah. how messed up we are? Yeah. How does what does he see? Okay. Uh, I mean, it's. I mean, there's. We all have a choice. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't put Hitler out. He didn't design Hitler. But doesn't he weep over it? Doesn't doesn't that break his heart? And therefore, oh, yeah. it should break ours. It's. I mean, right. it's very simplistic for us to just have a a Jesus answer. But I think that there's a part of this that makes us really uncomfortable. That makes Jesus uncomfortable. Right. And and we can't. Um, not that you're trying to sugarcoat it, but like just to have a, kind of a, a, I think there's, there's, what you're saying is true, but there's also a piece of it that is something very real that we have to interact with. I was in the women's prison two weekends ago with a mm-hmm. ministry team, and one of the things that the ministry gives the women as they leave is a cross, mm-hmm. and on the back side of the cross, there are the words, Christ is counting on you. I think that it, what it signifies is you are in relationship with me 
Jesus, you know, Jesus says that to us. Now you have a responsibility, and I'm counting on you to act in such a way that you engage the world as I do. And, you know, there's something very heavy to that, that the women take, wow, I, I have a responsibility in this little microcosm of the world, which is very hostile, you know, their, their space on the planet is, you know, we can set aside three days with ministry, and oh yeah, everything's great, but the reality is they have to go back and live in a very concentrated, hostile compound, and we're expecting them to be Jesus-y, yeah. when what you really might want to do is to survive, think you have to like do things that probably aren't very Jesus-y, right? right. Um, so I, I, you know, I just, I think there's a lot to this that we have to take seriously about there is action that we have to do. Right. You know, we can't, we can't spiritualize everything. Right. And I think it is spiritual to act, you know. And I don't mean to discount what you're saying, but I think... Make disciples of other people. You see, everybody has to God. That's the only way it can work. Anyway. But it's got to, just add on here. It's, it's more to that too, though, right? Because um, there were Christians in the United States that supported slavery. Yeah. And they supported it because it helped them economically, right? So, again, all I'm saying is that being, making disciples, it can't, it can't just stop there. It has to be a response. You have to do something because, um, Without going into much details, there's an argument out there, and, and people say, okay, you make Christians, make disciples, and then racism, these other issues will go away. And there's, there's a term out there for it, and there's no, no reason, reason to get all into it. But there's an argument out there that makes those claims, but there's not a whole lot of evidence for it, because there are a lot of people who are Christians who, right, who supported all sorts of really nasty, horrible things. And so I think there is some, there's action that has to be taken, whether it's subversive or whether it's more, you know, outright, you know, public whatever, private, I think there's something, there's something we're called to do, right? Um, right? So it, it, it requires a response. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it does require, and the response is going to be costly. In fact, yeah, Jesus says, I don't to cost us everything, right? right? It's supposed to cost us everything. And so, it's, and not, that, it's not a cheap response. Part, right? Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's, the, that's the hard part. It's a simple, yet really difficult, like, okay. what do you mean everything? I'll give you like 72%, right? Like, yeah, like, the and I think right. the different reactions make the kingdom of God so long as there is a reaction in yeah. some capacity, whether it be private or public yeah. or whatever. Yeah, maybe want to measure it. Yeah. Well, There's got to be a response. Sorry, Clint. No, I was just saying, I think the other part of that too, Robert, is like, for me anyway, like, I didn't realize I wasn't loving people equally. Interesting, yeah. You know? And it's like, I like what you're saying about the evangelical white mindset because I think that's what I grew up in and I didn't know you know it's just like yeah I love everyone so I love everyone I may not hang out with them or <laughs> do them or you know what I mean right, like, right, but right. you just don't even you know realize it until you're facing it yeah. and that's where the systems come into play too right um, and like I said like Christian love class like how on earth do we love one another it is so hard and um, of course it has to be spiritual of course because that's, I mean, that's what we learn in Scripture. We are incapable of loving like Jesus without Jesus. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Je- Jesus is the yay, and we're the amen. We're the ones that's going to make this thing work. 
And we, we got to, and we had our community, our relationship with Jesus was the only way to make this happen. And it's a process. It's going to take a long time, it seems like. But, you know, uh, um, in what ways do you guys find um, that this conversation or moving toward reconciliation or multi-ethnic thinking like push up against the structure of your church, right? We, we're kind of white evangelical traditions. Like, in what ways does that really need to change? You know, and you might actually have a lot of insight, you know, coming from the black church. But yeah. what ways have you guys faced that and are kind of heading on? And what ways do we still have like room to grow? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll let somebody else can ask if they want. I mean, I, we talked a little bit about this before and then maybe early on, but you got to change. you got to be able to give influence and power to different groups. You want to actually be a multi-ethnic church. You can't just be... Every once in a while, a black person preaches. Every once in a while, they play the drums. Right? It's your typical thing, right? They play the drums. I let them sing, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not calling you on JT. I'm saying, right? But you let... You, you have to give people influence and say you allow for college funds, right? You allow these traditions to make their way through and become part of what your church is instead of just like sort of giving lip service to diversity. And again, I'm saying the church is just doing it. I'm just saying that's how churches need to respond. And I think in some ways, leadership, right? An actual makeup of the church. No, I don't mean just hiring a black person off the street. Oh, yeah, that's a brother or sister. Let me hire them and check that box, right? No. They need to have qualifications, but be intentional in terms of seeking people out because that has real influence, both from a visible sort of, hey, I see myself reflected in the and in terms of what they would actually do and their insights and their experiences and how they would shape the church. But it requires giving something else, right? Say, in terms of structure and, and what church means. And a lot of churches aren't willing to do that because then all of a sudden it's like, well, what kind of church are we? Are we a multi-ethnic church? We're not a clear sort of black church and the black people, right? They, they might not grow. And the churches don't grow. We're not making enough disciples and then that's bad. And so, right, anyway, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but the point is you have to be willing to, to give those things up and deal with the cost. Ryan, I love that question, and your other question too. Um, that is that is one of the things that second question answers the first question for me. Um, that's one of the things that I've been praying about, and where I'm feeling more and more of the tension um, as we pray about that, um, and just asking Him to lead us in that because that's one of the real tensions that I feel is the reflection in the leadership. Um, and I absolutely love our church, love the people, um, but that needs to change. The reflection of the leadership needs to change. Um, and another piece of that is that I love our meetings with other churches. It's got to go beyond that. Amen. Um, it has really got to move beyond it. And so one of the things that keeps coming up for me that, um, I, you know, you guys have heard me say this probably three or four times or more, oh Lord, but um, Micah 6.8, we love to quote that passage, you know, do justice, love mercy. Um, but that last part is walk humbly. And to me, that's where I think we're missing it, uh, is walking side by side with people who are different from us. Um, I think we have that where we see the gospel and we see the life of Jesus prompting us to act with justice and to act with mercy. Um, but I don't think that we've got it right. We don't have it right in that area either, but the big gap for us is that walk humbly. Um, taking relationships beyond a gathering of people um, and into 
into really sharing with each other and relating to each other on a deeper level. It's one thing for me. Mm-hmm. When I see the incarnation of Jesus, it's I'm always fascinated by that anyway, but more and more it's dawning on me just the beauty of the fact that he became one of the most oppressed people in the history of the world. Simply by the, yes, absolutely, it's brilliant and beautiful that God becomes flesh, but a particular kind of flesh on purpose to associate himself with the most oppressed group of people in the history of the world. And so if we're followers of Jesus, then we have to do the same in the sense of relating, intimately relating. And I think that's where the relationship and the resistance that you're talking about in the beginning, that we skip that step of resisting. I think that's where relational resistance comes into play is when we we intentionally move ourselves in the lives of other people. So y'all pray for that, okay? Pray for what that looks like for us. I really are. Well, we've been having that conversation and we've been praying about that. So help us. Can I can I share something? Um, I'm I'm I, I, I'm out on the street all the time, and I talk to a lot of people, and uh, I get all I get it from everywhere. But anyway, the the thing is, uh, um, um, oh yeah, when you were talking about uh, uh, loving everybody the same, uh, it's it's I, I, that that love is there, but even Jesus had had three three people that he, that John, Peter, and James. They were they were they were the only ones that went to a prayer meeting up on a mountain, that, and then he transfigured in front of them. And, uh, um, but he still loved them all. He loves everybody just the same. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I, have, I, I get along with a lot of people, and, uh, um, and it's amazing. Uh, uh, but the, the thing is that I, I do that, I tell people my testimony. And, and, and whenever I had this encounter with Jesus, whenever he set me free, I, I have a purpose now. I have my value system has changed completely. I used to be, all I wanted to do was get high all the time. That was it. I mean, he just, bam, just changed me like that. And, uh, um, but, it's, but, but it's, it's, the momentum has been getting, it's, it's like a snowball going down a hill. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, I want to see other people prosper. I'm, my whole the whole concept of Jesus just changed, you know. I mean, he is powerful. I mean, mighty. He's a, he is awesome, <laughs> and I've seen amazing things happen to people. Uh, 
Neil called me up yesterday. He says, he says I've been crying all day. He went back to do, doing something he used to do, and he felt so bad, so guilty. He says, I'm done with this stuff. I don't want it no more. And then, and then, and then he texts me back. I guess it was this morning or something. He says, I've been redeemed. You know, I mean, this guy. But I've been for a year. I mean, we're looking at him on a sidewalk. And I'm just in prayer for them. I put people on my prayer list. I pray the feasting prayers over everybody every day. Everybody, most people here are already on there. But, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing things happen. I'm seeing a transformation for people on uh, Franklin Street, uh, Chapel Hill is my my, my target, you know. And uh, but I'm seeing some neat things happen. And the Holy Spirit, I learned a lot, a lot of things about. About uh, the love of God is just uh, just amazing. It's beyond that. I'm, I'm anybody's imagination. And see, he kissed me all the time. <laughs> Get better and better. But anyway, it, but it costs. You know, I like that. Whenever you say you were talking about cost before, it does cost a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and things I say, and, and then they then they happen. You know, it's just just amazing. But it's beautiful. But everybody can do this. Everybody's supposed to be able to do this. You know? And I pray for everybody having an encounter like that. And the more and it happens all the time, then it gets stronger and stronger. And, uh, but, uh, it went from my head to my heart. And that's what happened. It's a really long distance for a lot of folks, man. I mean, <laughs> I, no, it's funny you said, I was thinking about, no, I was thinking about that on the bus today, somebody said that, like, I see you on the bus a lot. Yeah, but like, you can measure it, but in reality, like, it actually is, it could be the longest distance possible, right, like, that, that connection. Um, can I actually close this in prayer, Matt, because it's about yeah, that time? Let's thank Chris for oh. doing this. All right, I won't pray like my uncle did at our family reunion before dinner, which I was pretty ticked at. I was like, come on, let me take it. Lord, thank you for this gathering of people. Thank you for prompting them to show up and them responding and being here. Uh, thank you for this opportunity I've had to talk a little bit about my own life and faith and how I've grown in you, um, the ways in which you, you showed me the error of my ways and made me become more of who you called me to be. For each person here, Lord, I pray uh, that they be willing to act boldly. They, they, they uh, be courageous, Lord. Um, thinking about Joshua and Caleb, you know, as they went and saw the promised land, and they, and they came back and they asked the ones courageous enough to say, "No, we can go, and, and this is our place." Uh, they, they, they exhibit the same courage, Lord. Um, this is really difficult. This is really hard. Uh, no matter what our background is—black, white, Latino, whatever—Lord, to think about. How, how grace and faith interact with one another. Yet you call us to examine this question, Lord, and to do something about it. Um, not merely to stay in our head, not merely to remain comfortable, but to take action. And so I don't know what that looks like for each person, uh, but I pray they'd be willing to take those steps, no matter what they are. Be willing to pay the cost, knowing that you're more than worthy and that you're there with them all along, God. I thank you for this community. I thank you. Um, for the reconciliation that takes place in the body of Christ, the potential for reconciliation um, among your people, Lord. Um, it's there. Um, and just give us the courage to actually pursue it. 
Amen. 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 Amen.